Our text this morning as we hear from the living God and His Word is 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verses 1 to 30. But we've been away from Samuel for a week, which maybe for some of us is long enough to forget where we were, or at least maybe for more of us to forget what it was that David said in 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, remember two weeks ago, David and Goliath, David, the youngest son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Young David, who tended the sheep, going back and forth to Bethlehem to feed them during the 40 days that Goliath taunted the people of Israel. Do you remember what he said? Listen to chapter 17, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is the Lord who, beginning with the overthrow of Pharaoh in the days of Moses and continuing up until the most recent destruction of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, had again and again delivered his wayward people by defeating their enemies. David knows he'll do it again that day. Verse 46, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, says the shepherd boy from Bethlehem. I come to you in the name of the Lord. That's what David said. And that's new, brothers and sisters. Not the name of the Lord part, of course. That's not new. This is the God who's been with his people Israel since their beginning. But I come in the name of the Lord. I come. It is the very emphatic form of the Hebrew pronoun I. Hebrew has more than one form, even more than one emphatic form of the, Hebrew, of the pronoun I. This is the very emphatic form of the Hebrew pronoun I that's used by David in verse 45 there. Grammatically speaking, the emphasis of that sentence is on the I. And that's new. Because never before had there been an individual who claimed to come in the name of the Lord. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel follows chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Because what we're meant to see is that this wasn't just 
a man of great faith in the Lord God speaking to Goliath, this was the Lord's own king who came to Goliath in the name of the Lord as the Lord's representative. And this was the first time there had been such a person, you see. Do you remember chapter 16 from three weeks ago now? Stretching it, I know. The Lord God of Israel had chosen a king for himself. Remember chapter 16, verse 1 told us that. And it was he on whom the Spirit of the Lord had powerfully come in chapter 16, verse 13. And now he was about to fight the Philistine, you see. That's the point. It's of tremendous significance that the message David brought to Goliath that day was about David. Of course, it was about David in relation to the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. But you can't miss that it's what David would do that was at the heart of his message. Here's verse 46 again from 1 Samuel 17. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Why? because I come in the name of the Lord, he said. But brothers and sisters, can you hear it? Can you hear the echo? What David said, as far as I can tell, and I spent a while looking for it, as far as I can tell, that exact expression to come in the name of the Lord. There's only one other time in the Old Testament that that shows up. And it's in a psalm that's written at a time when the speaker was threatened by enemies and when he cut them off, it says, in the name of the Lord. And it's in that psalm. It's Psalm 118. That then has the famous words that you know. First, the prayer of Psalm 118, verse 25, rings out by saying, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us. In Hebrew, Hoshiana, which transliterated in Greek becomes Hosanna. And how is it exactly that the Lord will answer that prayer to save? What's the message to his people? It's verse 26 of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, blessed is God's king who defeats our enemies. That's the hope of the people of God. You know this reference. We say it every year on Palm Sunday. Because what are the crowds shouting as Jesus approaches Jerusalem? Psalm 118, verse 26. Here's Matthew, chapter 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before Jesus and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! 
to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Oh, they didn't know what this king would do to save them, did they? They didn't know that as verse 22 of that same psalm says, Jesus would be the stone that the builders rejected, who nonetheless would become the cornerstone. But Jesus knew it. And so as the time for Jesus' death drew near and he laments over Jerusalem, what does he say in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39? For I tell you, Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because he will come again. God has saved his people. Death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. And brothers and sisters, when he does come again, he will say, like David before him, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. So this morning, because we're turning now to 1 Samuel chapter 18, this is my question. What will be your response to the king, to the Lord's anointed, Simply put, my question is this. Will you love him? Will you love him? Do you love him now? Now, I need to pause here first, I think, because someone reminded me the other day that I can't just do, I can't just do this. I can't just assume that things that I think are clear are clear. So let me say this part. You can call me on that when you want to. When we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, do you understand that that's not technically his name we're using? It ends up functioning that way, but technically it's not his name. Not, at least not the second part of it. It's a title. His name is Jesus. The name Jesus, of course, comes from the Greek name, Jesus which is a rendition of the Hebrew Yeshua, meaning Yahweh saves. That's his name. That's the only name we're given. Jesus. Christ isn't a name. It's a title. He is the Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. You hear it. Just, we just transliterate the word into English. Christos means anointed. That's a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. But you've seen now in 1 Samuel 16 what the anointing is for, right? He's the anointed king, right? The Lord says to Samuel, take your horn with oil. Anoint the king. The significance of the title, the Christ, the anointed one, goes back to these days when God chooses a king to reign over his people Israel so that instead of Jesus Christ, if you prefer, you could read that as King Jesus. 
In fact, the New Testament scholar Tom Wright has produced a, a translation of the whole New Testament where every time it says Jesus Christ, he translates it King Jesus. Maybe you'd find that helpful. David, you see, was the Lord's Christ in the sense of being the Lord's Messiah, in the sense of being the anointed one. It's what the words mean. In the story of 1 Samuel, we're following the Old Testament foundations of the Christ, the title that now belongs to Jesus. And we're going to keep going in Samuel. And we're going to find out that David fails to fulfill the role given to him, right? I mean, I don't mean to spoil that for you. It looks pretty good at this point after Goliath. It's a good moment for David. But David fails. Because ultimately, it will be Jesus who will be what David failed to be. That's where this is all moving. Which means that we can start to draw some connections from David to Jesus, I think, if we're careful about it. And this morning, that's really all I'm doing in 1 Samuel 18. I'm just asking you this question. What will be your response to the Lord's anointed? Because I think that's what 1 Samuel 18 is all about. 1 Samuel 18, we get two very different reactions to David, to the Lord's anointed king. We find one can either love him, accept him, like Jonathan does, like others do, or that one can fear him and reject him in the way Saul does. And what I propose to do in the time remaining here, which isn't as long now, <laughs> is to walk through chapter 18 in a cursory way First, to look at the love that embraces the king in verses 1 to 4. And then looking at the fear that rejects the king in verses 5 to 30. And then to try to map that, if, if you go with me there hermeneutically, to map that unto your response to the anointed king, King Jesus. And I know there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot that can be said from this chapter that I won't even touch on. And I know that I promised you three weeks ago that I would talk about the chronology issues between 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17 and 18. And if I did, it'd be the whole rest of the sermon. So instead, if you want it, I can give you scanned pages of material that talk about what's going on in 1 Samuel 16 and 17 and 18 in terms of the chronology and why it seems like David does finds out who that rather that Saul finds out who David is and then he doesn't know who David is and then he does know who David is again and there's all these things and you have lots of questions and I get it. People write books on those questions and I can show you some of them but I'm not going to talk about it because I think it's not where the text is taking me this morning. And though I know I'm at the risk of oversimplifying a bit what's going on, I think this general contrast is what's happening in this chapter. And my goal is that after I reflect on this with you, you can think about where you stand with respect to King Jesus. Make sense? That's my goal. So, first off, love. Do you love him? 
the prime example of love in response to David as the Lord's king, as the anointed one of the Lord, is, of course, Jonathan. And for that, we're looking now most closely at verses 1 to 4 of our chapter. There's going to be a lot more about Jonathan down the road. And, of course, it's not only Jonathan who loves David in chapter 18, is it? Everybody seems to love David, almost. Verse 16 says, All Israel and Judah love David, and Saul's daughter Michal loves David in verses 20 and 28. And I think there are different nuances to these different groups of people loving David, but I think running throughout the chapter that there is a, a, a constant theme. And I think it's easiest to see that theme in the love that Jonathan has for David. That that's where we most clearly see what it fundamentally means to love the Lord's anointed one. So that's where I'll focus our time for now. This relationship between David and Jonathan, it's often been seen as an example of a wonderful and powerful human friendship. And it was that. And it will develop in the chapters ahead of us in that way. But I want to say right from the start, it was more than that. Let's read in verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What is the general idea of verse 1? What is the concept realm of those words to, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is a bit tricky for us because we have this natural tendency, it makes sense, to read in the term love, we see the word love there and we put into it almost exclusively emotional content. And I don't want to remove emotion from it, there is a deep friendship of David and Jonathan here that's crucial, and it becomes part of what it means for Jonathan to love David. But it's also crucial, I think, to recognize who we're talking about here. It's frankly remarkable that Jonathan loves David. Because if anyone should have felt threatened by David's victory, it would have been Jonathan. This is Saul's son, remember? This is the crown prince who would have every right to expect to succeed his father Saul on the throne. And you and I know as readers of this book at this point, but Jonathan probably did not yet know that God had chosen David to be Israel's next king. David could be easily seen at this juncture as Jonathan's opponent. What's remarkable is that this was of no importance to Jonathan. That in fact, this, this comes explicitly clear a few chapters later when we find that Saul scolds Jonathan in chapter 20, verse 31. And Saul says this, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, that's David, right? Neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom shall be established. Here where Saul's at. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. What becomes clear in the Samuel narrative, though, is that Jonathan's not there. Jonathan's more concerned with the welfare of God's people than he is with his own advancement in self-interest. 
And so Jonathan joins his life to David's rather than setting himself against David. In fact, the word that's translated knit in verse one there often refers to the binding together of people for political purposes. In fact, in other contexts, it can refer to a political conspiracy. In fact, it can be positive or negative depending on the nuance. The nuancing of this knitting is clearly positive. There was to be no conflict of interest between them. Jonathan joined his life to David rather than setting himself against him. And so here's where we see pretty clearly that there are nuances to the word love here that are not our first instinct when it comes to the use of that term, right? Because we're English speakers who think in English and think of love in the way our culture defines it. So whereas we tend to see only the emotional dimensions of the word love, and I'm not denying that there are any of those, the Bible and the ancient Near Eastern world more generally tends to use the term in political contexts. And see, it's that nuancing, once you get that, it's that nuancing that becomes clear then as we move into verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And it's unpacked for us in the next verse. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. It's important that the covenant is initiated by Jonathan. The ESV translates that correctly. That makes sense when you realize that Jonathan at this stage is the person with the position, the power. He's the crown prince after all. But you see, Jonathan recognizes in David someone who lives out, who lives out his faith in the work of God's kingdom who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, Jonathan had won a victory himself over the Philistines in chapter 14. Remember that? <clears throat> Saying in verse 6 there, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan sees David, and his friendship with David is rooted now in a common faith. And so in the climactic moment of this scene, Jonathan strips himself of his robe that was on him and his armor and even his weapons, and he gives them to David. That would be Jonathan's royal robe, it seems to most scholars. That the significance of Jonathan's act is here, symbolically, to transfer his own royal rights and prerogatives to David. Does he even know? that the Lord's already anointed him through Samuel? It's not entirely clear he does. But the passing over of his royal weapons and armor would have the same significance. It's an act of abdication. In other words, David would take precedence and Jonathan would rejoice. Jonathan loved David. All of which is then in direct contrast to the response of Saul to David in most of chapter 18, right? It's Saul's response of fear 
that then takes up most of verses 5 to 30. And if you know the course of events in 1 Samuel from this point on, it's this chapter that then sets the stage for this intense antagonism on the part of Saul toward David, who will not give David the throne. And this will play out for some time, not till 2 Samuel 5, that we finally just have David. The narrator takes us here after the first five verses, which sort of summarize the situation. He takes us back in verses 6 to 11 of our chapter to the time immediately after David's victory. I'm telling you, there's this sort of flashback and forwardness going on here in some of these points of the chapter. And here the narrator's taking us right back to the time immediately following the defeat over Goliath. And what becomes clear is that Saul, unlike Jonathan, is suspicious of David from the very beginning. Whereas Jonathan's soul in response to David is knit to David's inwardly. For Saul, everything is just hostility. It's the opposite. And what's the spark that ignites the fire that comes? It's there in verse 7, but read from verse 6, sorry. Verse 6, as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Notice who it says they were going to meet. With tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And it's not actually clear that the women meant anything sinister in that. They were linking Saul and David together in this victory, in fact. And, and I've read enough scholars who suggest that this is just a convention of putting a number in the first line and ramping it up in the second in normal Hebrew poetic parallel type of style to just intensify the, the whole point of the, of the dual parallel. But to Saul's ears, even though they come out to meet Saul, you noted, to Saul's ears, all he can hear is being heard through jealousy. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? What is Saul realizing? It appears that when Saul hears the women sing, he becomes convinced that David was the one of whom Samuel had spoken back in chapter 15, verse 28, if you remember it, when Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What does that language do in Saul's mind? up to this point. And so verse 9 summarizes where Saul is at, and Saul eyed David from that day on. And from the very first day now that Saul retains David at the court after his victory over Goliath, he suspects David is the person whom the Lord has chosen to replace him as king, so he wants him dead. The contrast to Jonathan could not be greater. The jealousy you reasonably might expect from Jonathan, but didn't see, emerges with a vengeance from his father. So that by the end of the chapter, we're told in verse 29 that Saul was David's enemy. 
continually. The word translated enemy is a form of a verb that means to be hostile to, to hate. Saul had adopted the very opposite stance toward David from those who loved him. Why? <laughs> well, we've been through enough narratives about Saul to have a sense of why. But Chapter 18 describes these two opposite reactions to David. Jonathan is knit to David and symbolically submits to his kingly authority. Did you hear me say that? He's knit to David and symbolically submits. He submits to his kingly authority. Saul, rather than relinquishing his cherished position as king, wants to prevent David from becoming king. Worse, he wants him dead. In other words, friends, Saul sought his own interests rather than submitting them to God's revealed will. How do you respond to the anointed king in your own heart, in your own life? The chapter just reads like then a catalog of events that just chronicle Saul's increasingly harsh rejection. So verse 10, the harmful spirit from God, quite the contrast from the spirit of God that now is empowering David. There is in some sense a, a harmful presence or spirit from God that rushes upon Saul and he tries to murder David twice with a spear. Verse 13 says Saul removed David and made him a commander of a thousand, meaning he was demoted to a rank that would require him now to fight more regularly, thus risking his life more regularly in Saul's hopes that he would die. Beginning in verse 17, we read of Saul's plot to kill David by denying him his elder daughter, Mirab. We don't even know why. And instead offering Michal, who the text says also loved David. Saul can't stand. But he'll only give her to him if David kills a hundred Philistines. Saul seems to think the odds would be in his favor in that one, but instead David returns with the gruesome evidence of having killed 200 Philistines. Brothers and sisters, it's the case, is it not, that the Lord's true anointed ones will always encounter opposition. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You hear it? Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know where that psalm is quoted in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. When that exact quote of Psalm 2 verse 1 is made and then followed by saying, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Hear it? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We're going to be with David for a while. But already we see echoes of what is to come. 
It's the narrator who from time to time in this chapter explains more than the eye could discern to be happening. It happens in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David, the narrator tells us, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. It happens in verse 14. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Verse 15. And when Saul, Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. And finally, after leaving him with no choice but to give David his daughter Michal for a wife, the text concludes in verse 28, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. I mean, you might have expected David to be the one who's afraid of Saul. No? Humanly speaking, Saul has the upper hand. He can make or break David, surely. But no. Because the Lord is with David. And brothers and sisters, when the Lord is with a person, he or she is secure no matter what forces may be arrayed against David draws such different reactions, but it could be no other way. Because in the end, what was it that provoked such contrasting responses? Well, put simply, it was the presence of the Lord. It was their response to David as coming in the name of the Lord, the one whom the Lord was with. It had to do with who he was. The Lord was with him. If you did not throw in your lot with him, sooner or later you end up fearing and hating him. The love of Jonathan and others for David was not unemotional, but it was more than just that. It was the recognition and the glad acceptance of David's role as the leader who came in the name of the Lord to save Israel from her enemies. When the crowd said it of the Lord Jesus Christ on that first Palm Sunday, when they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, here's the question to ask. Did they love him? Crucify him. They would shout a few days later. But God had a plan. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Which means that the question has shifted for me today. We'll be with David for some time to come. We'll trace a lot of this through the weeks ahead. But today and in the future, the question for you is, do you love him? Because the king will come again. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, King Jesus, is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And when he does, will the words that we say reflect a love in our hearts 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.